I mean, I was that person. I wore a mask. The first line of my book is I used to think I was special. And I and I felt all these ideas and I felt unvalidated and, and, and not listened to. And I was alternately angry and depressed and withdrawn and thinking and confused. And I had to reprogram myself. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Baloop, and boy, do we have an exciting, incredible guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a former submarine captain in the United States Navy. He is the author of the brand new book, Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary David Marquette. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. What a lead up. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? We're known for that on the show. So David, it's a real pleasure to meet you and uh, I'm honored to have you on the show and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about your book. You know, let me tell you a little bit about our listener. Our listener is a man or woman that I like to call a heart leader and a heart leader is the thought leader that leads from the heart. There's someone who wants to make a difference in the world. They want to make life better for their fellow man and woman, and they want to do it through the vehicle of entrepreneurship. No socialists listen to this show. Only good capitalists <laughs> do. And one of the reasons they listen to this show is they want to learn and be inspired by the phenomenal guests that we have. And we have phenomenal guests on our show, folks just like yourself. But before they can give you their full heart, their full listening, they need to know who you are. Tell us, David, how'd you get to be the great David Marquette? Tell us your backstory. Well, I was the greatest command and control leader on the planet. (laughs) And uh, my story was I grew up in Massachusetts. It was during the Cold War. I'm a baby boomer. And I was uh, this geeky, introverted kid. I was on the math team. But I really felt passionately. I said, we got to win this. I mean, it's more important. This is very important. This idea that humans can choose their profession their religion, their spouse, without someone telling them what to do was very important. So I go home, I tell my mom, hey, I'm going to be in the military. And she was like, what? Look at you. You're going to get beat up. (laughs) And I was like, no, no, no. I read about these things called submarines. The job of the submarine is to hide from people. It's perfect for me. So she said, okay, I can see that. So 17 years old, I show up at the United States Naval Academy. They give me a book. It says leadership is this art and science of directing the thoughts, plans, and actions. Not just plans and actions, but the actual thoughts of people. And I was actually good at it. And I would see the problem and I would say, okay, stop that, do this. And it was all about telling people what to do. And as as a result of that, the Navy promoted me and they said, you're going to be submarine commander, which was, of course, my dream job. And at the very last minute, I got shifted to a different ship, one that I wasn't trained for, but the old habits stood stood hard. And I ended up giving orders that didn't make sense. And, and the whole thing blew up. 
and we had to change the way we operated. And the problem was, in the past, I said, well, you know what? My problem is I gave bad orders. I got to give better orders. But now the problem, the only solution was I got to figure out how not to give orders. I need a team that doesn't need to be told what to do. They tell me what we need to do and how they're planning on achieving it. And this was the this was the flip that we did. And I tell that story and turn the ship around. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Sounds like I got to go re-turn the ship around too, my yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a fun read for you. It's uh, Harvard, as someone described it as Harvard Business School meets Hunt for Red October. I thought that was really that was really. I love it, man. I love the Hunt for Red October. Praise. It's one of my one of my favorite books of all time. Right? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I I love that Tom Clancy stuff, and I was using his book. I was like decoding it when I wrote mine. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. So, you know, I was a I was a cold warrior too. I, I didn't join the military, but uh, I was in university in the eighties. Uh, I was twenty years old, and I was in a course uh, for international relations. And I knew that um, standing for the forces of freedom was important because I came from a country in the Middle East that was not free. I came from Iran, uh, and mm. after the Iranian Revolution. Freedom in Iran uh, went down. It didn't go up. And uh, we were Christians. We are Christians still. We left Iran. We came to the West. And every day in my journal, I write that I'm grateful to live in the free West every single day. And to me, the idea that men and women could choose their own destiny is a very important one. It's one worth fighting for. And thank you for your service to help keep the rest of us free. So I wanted to say that first and foremost. Yeah, I don't. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like uncool to talk about that. And I was just the uncool kid. And I, when I was in the military, even when I was in the military, we, when I was first joined the submarine force in the eighties, we, we like, it was teeth versus teeth. Like we would go up, go eye to eye with the Soviets. And we had a tremendous sense of purpose. And then when they threw in the towel in 1989, there was sort of this malaise and I would get these sailors coming into the ship and I would say, hey, why are you here? Like, what do you mean? Well, what did you swear? To? I swore to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign in the middle. And I would say, well, what does that mean? What is the Constitution? And people are like, I don't know. I have been in the Navy for eight years. No one ever asked me that question. <laughs> I'm like, well, we got to understand that because you got to understand how important it is. So when you were in the build for hour nine on an eight hour watch and it's hot and uncomfortable and you're sore and sticky, you need to know how important it is that you do that job right. You don't make an, you don't make a sound that can, can transmit it and it reveals our, our, our position. So I was the uncool guy who just talked about it, but it was so powerful for my team because now we had, it was like a near term, far term. Like the near term was, I need to do this stuff. I need to clean the building. I need to paint. I need to stand watch. Some of it's not romantic, but for a purpose, far term, a better world. Yeah, amen, amen. And it's important to, to bring that up today in 2020, because even though we don't have the Soviets to contend with, the world is still a dangerous place. The forces of tyranny are still uh, marching and uh, they're marching not just outside of, of the West, but uh, there's also fifth columns within the West that are, that are saying that things like socialism are cool. Like it, it, it boggles my mind that people don't realize that many, many great Americans and many, many 
great people in the West and previous generations fought and died and gave their lives so we'd be free from that stuff. So it's really, really important to me that there's men like you that are still out there and still believe and are still willing to put their lives on the line for the rest of us. So thank you and kudos, number one. Number two, I think the military, in particular the United States military, is the best training ground for leadership in the world. Would you agree with me? Yeah, I don't know. It was. It's interesting because on the one hand, the the structure initially I found was very. It was very appealing. I have a book. I have my my Naval Academy 1981 leadership book. I graduated in 81, which says what well, and it's and it's a ter- I would tell you it's a terrible definition. Directing the thoughts. This is not what leadership is. What we got on what we achieved on the submarine was actually flipping it and saying. I need everybody to think, not just do. We were a can-do, can-do out the wazoo, but we were not a can-think organization. But but on the other hand, the sense of purpose, the sense of camaraderie, and the fact that I had the freedom to do the kind of things we did on the submarine, we, the, the, the short story is we changed our language. We stopped saying, I request permission, or tell me what to do. We just said, here's what I intend to do. And, and and the difference is when you say, when you go to your boss and say, I intend to do something, you have permission already. All your boss can do is ask questions and stop you. And it's so powerful because bosses, when I when we talk about it, are like, yes, now I can lean back. And they're all leaning into me. I said, I need to stop running around making everything happen all the time. And that's what what you achieve. But it's scary because it's like, well, what if they don't do anything? And then I have to go back to tell them. So it's that transition that's magic. But we all did it by just changing the language. We there weren't any speeches. There were no there were no quote culture change. There was just okay. Say it this way. Say it like say the the word they was outlawed on the submarine. If you came up to me and say, well, they ordered the wrong part, I just looked the other direction. I just ignored you. I didn't give you a lecture about don't use they. I just ignored you. And then they say, oh, we ordered the wrong part. Oh, but that's supply department. When I'm in engineering, doesn't matter. We're all on the same team. Oh, you're an officer, but I'm an enlisted guy. They, doesn't matter. We're on the same team. But it was the use of the word we that rewired our brains. And most culture change people think it's backwards. They say, oh, I'm, I'm going to spout a bunch of ideas and somehow your brain is going to change. That's not how it works. You actually practice something and then your brain changes. That's fascinating. So you took a culture that was very top-down, very command and control, as you put it, and you empowered people to start speaking with the language of ownership. Is that a fair point? Exactly. So there's more ownership. And so we have got this kind of framework where we say, okay, at the bottom, there's tell me what to do. And then I would just get people to say what they see, just describe the situation. Too many times leaders say, I want to build an empowering organization. And it's like they, they view it like a light switch. Well, I used to tell you what to do. Now you tell me what to do. No, 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 no. That's too abrupt. You say, why don't you tell me how you see it? Then I'll tell you what to do. Why don't you tell me what you think's going on? Then I'll tell you what to do. Why don't you tell me what you think's going on and then what you'd like to do and I'll give you permission. And then why don't you just tell me what you, what you would do if I weren't here? And so you're gradually raising the temperature and that graduated approach is really, really important because that's what makes it feel safe. We have a sense of progress because every day, every week is a little bit more empowering, but it's not scary because it's not an abrupt and 
you get to have these conversations and we reveal the whole cold thing. You got to reveal your thinking. I can tell you, I spent so much time in bureaucracies trying to hide my fears, my doubts, my thinking. I don't want anyone to judge me, anyone to, to realize my thinking was all off base. And now we just throw it on the open and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you guys all think? Oh, that's great. Oh, that's boneheaded. Let's hash it out. Let's hear so we won't won awards in the short run. We Every sailor who won, who was eligible re-enlisted. We had 33 out of 33, 100% set a record, highest performance. But the thing that was really interesting was over the next 10 years, more submarine commanders just got selected from this one ship than any other submarine. And this is what this is the difference because we're building leaders. And so we call it a leader leader versus leader follower. So this new book is, okay, well, how do you actually, what's the rhythm of that look like? How do you think about work? And that's, what I spent the last five years basically working on. I love it. So you've got a playbook of six do-overs from the industrial age. Let's talk about those because those you go through those in the book. Control the clock, don't obey the clock. Talk a bit about that. So my own experience as being a leader was I kept wanting to be – inclusive. I kept wanting to ask questions in a way to make it easy for people to respond, probabilistic, whatever. But I, I just felt like my programming took me into a different, less helpful direction. I, well, I, since I travel a lot, I see all these interactions. I could predict if someone comes up to someone and says, well, I think this and you don't think it, how's that person going to respond? They're going to defend, they're going to react, respond, reply. Rarely will they be curious. Oh, tell me more about that. Because our, our programming is to be compelling, not curious. And what we want to do in many cases is flip this program. So you want to be curious first before compelling. The major, the number one play from the industrial age is obey the clock. That's why, that's why we pay people by the hour. But oh, by the way, not everybody, just the quote workers. The management, we pay them salary hourly. And we have words like clockwork, we clock in and we clock out. And this is all stems from this idea that we're going to run the production line as long as possible. And woe be it to anyone who interrupts production. So there's huge cultural biases against the person who says, yeah, I think this isn't quite right. I'm not sure the parts aren't going in right, but I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm not going to be the fat person who stops the production line. And then, and then we, we, we make uh, inferior products and it doesn't feel good. No one, no one is happy going home at the end of work knowing, yeah, I really I had to keep it to myself. So we want to make it easy for people to, to say those things. I love it. That's powerful. That's a really good reframe. Uh, so let's look at the uh, the next one. Number two, collaborate, don't coerce. Talk a bit about that. So the next thing that the next fundamental structure of an industrial organization is we separate what I call the doers from the deciders. And that's why we have white collar, blue collar, leader, follower. That's why we have these dichotomous labels. We have cultural symbols. So I know when I go into work, what kind of like, oh, you're wearing overalls. Oh, you're wearing a lab coat. I got it. And this is no longer helpful. The, the best organizations today, and, and when I say the best, I mean they're the best for the organization and for the people in it, allow the doers to be the deciders. No, 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 no. We'll decide and then we'll tell you what to do. So that's coercion. That's what leadership, that's what industrial age leadership is. Now we label it. We don't say that. We say, oh, I inspire you or I uh, motivate you. But basically I'm getting you to do something I chose for you. So 
true collaboration, people, even when they say they're collaborating, it's often coercion. Let's say we give a team a question. They're sitting at tables of five and a bunch of executives. And I say, how many countries in Africa? And you got to come up, you as a table got to agree and you have 60 seconds. What do they do? One person shouts out a number. Well, I think there's 20. What do you guys think? Well, no, 18, no, 22. The person who thinks there might be 80 countries just sort of shrinks down in their chair. The very way we run that meeting by discuss first and then sort of vote is a coercion because we're anchoring and we're using groupthink to get people to come away around my way of thinking. The right way to run that meeting is to say, before we contaminate everyone, write your, what you think on a card. And so now we have a whole range of numbers. Maximum variability occurs before the discussion and thinking is a, a maximized variability sport. That's why all innovation happens at the periphery, right? Oh, new ideas on the periphery. But what we do is we apply reduced var variability rule set to a maximum maximized var variability sport and we get suboptimal outcomes. Now everyone flips their card over and I say, oh, you wrote five, you wrote 95. Let's hear from you. You invite the outliers to speak. And now what you're getting is the wisdom of the crowd, not just the loud. And you're hearing from the quiet people who may have the, the first person who says the water in Flint, Michigan is poison is the, they sound, that's weird. I've never heard that. How could that possibly be? But it turns out they're right. So we have to listen to those people. Not all, now they're not always right, but you don't know that until after you, you listen to them. Yeah, I live in, in Ontario, Canada, and we had a, uh, a situation where there was an E. coli infection uh, in mm. the water. And uh, the, the folks who called it out, nobody wanted to listen to them at first. So I totally get that. Makes, makes perfect sense. So yeah. commit, don't comply. That's number three. Let's get into that. In industrial organizations, the idea was, since I was deciding for what you needed to do, your job was to comply with my instructions. And we see industrial accidents over and over again, and I talk about one in the book, where teams, knowing that it's the wrong answer, simply shrug their shoulders and they conform to position and comply with their instructions. This is not from ignorance of knowing whether it's right or wrong. They know it's wrong. And you can go on and on and on, whether it's Volkswagen doing a diesel cheat or Wells Fargo employees creating fake bank account, on and on and on. We're simply complying with bad behavior. It takes humans in general, I don't think, choose to be bad. It takes some pressure and coercion to actually engage in bad behavior. And here's why it works. It's because in those environments, I'm being told what to do. If I had to stand up and choose to operate this way, I wouldn't. But when I get the situation, where, oh, well, my boss told me to do it. That's what allows people to have this bad behavior. So in the, what we want from collaboration, if the team, if the doers are the deciders and they chose, hey, we're going to run eight hour shifts instead of 10 hour or six or whatever it is, uh, we want to run four day week, fine. They're now committed. It's their thing. They're going to make it work because of their idea. And that's commitment. It comes from within. Yeah. Like, you know what? I really like that one. In fact, I, I uh, am going to work very hard to apply that into my uh, small company. And, and and I run a men's team. And I'm the leader yeah. of that men's team. I'm, I'm the captain of the team. And I, I'll tell you, that's something that I think I ought to put in place in terms of how I lead that team. So thank you for that. 
When you say team, I talk. Sorry, Nikki. You, is, is this a sports team you're? Wearing no, it's a men's your, team. Your it's, team a, it, it's a it's uh, a it's a group of men that look to be better men in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not saying don't coach them, don't help people, but at the end of the day, the commitment. It's always better coming from. Here's a very simple thing. Let's say you want to stop eating dessert. And now you have two ways to tell yourself. You can say, I don't eat dessert or I can't eat dessert. So the waiter comes up and says, hey, would you like to see the dessert menu? Say, no, no, I can't eat dessert. Well, the problem there is I can't. It feels like someone, something external is imposing that on me. Now, if you say, I don't eat dessert, it means you're not the person who eats kind of person that eats dessert. Now, it turns out, uh, that's, and psychologists have studied this, that at the end of a long day, when you have resource depletion, when you're tired, when you're hungry, when the only thing in front of you to eat is dessert, the people who say to themselves, I don't eat dessert, they are able to resist dessert. They are, act, they are more in control of their behaviors than the people who say, I can't eat dessert. And this is the difference between external, well, carrot and stick approach. Uh, but it even goes to, down to self-talk, how you talk to yourself. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay, number four, complete, don't continue. What's that about? So the idea from the industrial age is then continue the production line as long as possible. When Ford started building cars, he started uh, the Model T in 1904, and he, he, they ran the, essentially the same model for almost 20 years. At one point, they made more cars than everyone else combined, but by the end of a 20-year period, they were getting their clock cleaned by General Motors, which was being run by Alfred Sloan, introducing new models more frequently. The Model T seemed stale by this point. And so the what you want now is to chunk the work into pieces. And how long those pieces are is a key decision that the leader needs to make. So two things. Think about it as an experiment. And all decisions have expiration dates. So rather than saying, oh, we're gonna, as a new initiative, we're going to change the process to do this. You say, we're going to run an experiment for three months with this new process. And what happens there is we activate everyone's senses of learning. Okay. And at the end, you all are going to get a chance to tell me what's messed up about it and how we make it better. So now they're not fighting it. They're like, yeah, okay, we'll try it. I can do anything for three months. I'll try it. And I'll keep a big notebook how screwed up it is and how we can make it better. Well, that's exactly what you want because then in three months, we're all going to get together. Your people are going to show up and say, well, we could do this, 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 this. Oh, great. Why don't you do that? Now you're, again, you're letting the doers be the deciders and now they're owning it. So that's, that's kind of the sense of what we're trying to do here. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Okay, number five, improve, don't prove. Yeah, so that's part of this last thing, which is the mindset from the industrial age was I got to get it done. It's a proven perform mindset. If you're running a 100 meter dash, then it's yeah, I got to get it done. And it's the sense of get it done that results in corporate disasters and people not speaking up versus this learning approach. We got to get better. If you want to be in business for a quarter, then a sense is just like, let's get it done is great. But business doesn't end after this quarter. If you want to be in business for a quarter century, then you need to have an adaptive learning approach. So the emphasis got to be on learning. Don't have just quarterly goals. All the artifacts in your business, 
our quarterly objectives. We're going to do this. We're going to raise revenue by this. We're going to make so many sales calls. It's all about do, 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 do. It's like, well, what are we going to learn this quarter? Oh, we don't have a learning. Even when I go to universities, they don't have learning objectives. <laughs> it's funny. And uh, yeah, and, and job descriptions, they're all about what you're going to do. The, the job description doesn't say, and by the way, these things are the kinds of things that this, like the learning that will occur on the job. And then we get a bunch of people who apply for the job who are not interested in learning because the job description is attracting that uh, demographic because it doesn't talk about learning. Write a job description where it talks about all the kinds of learning that are need, need to happen, should happen, and can happen, and you'll attract people with a learning mindset. That's fantastic. I love it. So last <laughs> but not least, connect, don't conform. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So in the industrial age, because it was fundamentally coercive, I'm going to get you to do something I chose to do, then I didn't need to connect with you as a human being. In fact, a human connection would inter actually interfere with that structure. So we eschewed human connections. But now, if you truly believe in letting the doers be the deciders, we're asking people, everybody in the organization now has to invoke thinking and make decisions. And as you said at the very beginning, we're moving from less ownership to more ownership. Well, more ownership is scary. It's vulnerable. It's like, well, what would you do if I weren't here? You got to make a hypothesis about the future. You got to step out. And in order for that to, those to be healthy, healthy decisions come from healthy emotions and healthy emotions come from feeling human, which means we, we connect at work as, as human. So this connect idea is the play that underlies everything. And there's so many HR policies and there's so many rituals at work, executive dining rooms where, where we segregate the most important people from the peons of the organization. Well, this is the exact opposite of connecting and it's industrial age. So and I still, I still go to companies that have these things. And I'm like, this isn't like, how do we talk? And then they're like, oh, we didn't know this was going on. Yeah, because you live in this little glass bubble. It's your fault. And yeah, don't get me going on that. Yeah. I'll tell you, here's the thing. I really, I really like the sixth one a lot because it fits into something that I believe in uh, a great deal. I coined the term and I call heart leader, heart leadership. Yeah. And to me, a heart leader is a man or a woman who leads from the heart as a thought leader because our, our, our podcast is about thinking and thought leadership, and, and so is the work that we do. But you got to be more than just about your head, more than about good thoughts. you got to be about connecting with your fellow man and woman. you got to be about making a difference. There's so many people out there that are suffering in the world. They put on this mask of a great big smile, and they go out there in the world, and, and they pretend everything's okay, but inside they're dying. They're dying because of a lack of connection, a lack of love. And we, we live in a time and a world where that's more important than ever. So kudos for coming up with six very powerful do-overs from the industrial age, the last one being my favorite. Well done. Thanks. And, and Nikki, I, just to be vulnerable on my side, this was a self-help book. I mean, I was that person. I wore a mask. The first line of my book is I used to think I was special and I and I felt all these ideas and I felt unvalidated and I'm not listened to. And I was alternately angry and depressed and withdrawn and thinking and confused. And I had to reprogram myself. 
And it was finally when I started thinking about it, it was like, I'm not even thinking and I'm not even making choices about how I respond in life. If, if this happens, I respond this way. If that happens, I respond this way. And here's a simple example. If we're going to make a decision in a meeting, we're going to discuss it first and then vote. And like I talked about before, the best thing to do is vote first and discuss. Why are we – psychologists have known for decades the impact of anchoring and group thing. But we still keep running the meeting. Here's another one. We would get together and we say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna load the torpedo. Here's what you're gonna do. Bop, bop, bop. We good? Uh-huh. Like the person who thinks we're not good is not gonna speak up at that moment. So what you wanna say is, what are me, what are we missing? How could this go? You want to make it easy for people to raise their hand. We had a horrible situation in the U.S. submarine force. While I was captain, another ship came up, ran into a Japanese fishing boat and sank it. Oh. Nine people died. Yeah, it was terrible. And it was a fishing school. So these were like seven, uh, two adults, but seven high school kids at oh. fishing school off the coast of Hawaii. No, no war, no, no emergency situation, just a, just peacetime maneuver. And a sailor on the ship had an indication that there was a ship there, that it was close, and he didn't speak up. And, the, and later, you know, at the court, the captain is, is blaming. I said, well, no one told me. Yeah, but that's... But we, you, didn't create a an, an environment where it was easy and it was all the same place. Continue, it's like this ship had a schedule. Continue the schedule. Don't interrupt the schedule. And, uh, and conform to your role. Comply to your instructions. I'm going to coerce you. And in many, many subtle ways. And it was this horrible, horrible, horrible. And, and I think fundamentally, first of all, I love the iHeart. Like, let's have all heart meetings. Like, let's not have all hands meetings. I go to tech company, they have an all hands meeting. It makes no sense. So, <laughs> I love it. So, so, yeah. So, it, but it's the industrial age word because I hired you for your hands, but we're still using those words. Yeah, man, that's brilliant stuff, David. I'm, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm definitely going to buy a copy of your your other book. And, I, and, and I'll tell you, I, 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 I chat with you a little bit offline. I, I, I run a, um, a series of mastermind experiences for people that I call heart leaders and thought leaders. And we get folks to speak for us sometimes in person, sometimes over, over Zoom. And it'd be an honor to have you share some of this wisdom and I mean, I can get a signed copy of your book, purchase them from you, and get it to our folks. I think they'd love it. But this has been a fantastic interview. We end off each one of our interviews by asking you as our guest expert to share your top three expert action steps. So what are the three things that you recommend that our listener take on in his or her life, in his or her business to make it better? What say you? Uh, number one, start your questions with the word how. Stop Stop saying, are you sure? Will it work? Are those assumptions going to come true? Say, how sure are you? How safe is it? How likely is it to work? When you start the question with how, you can't shoehorn the other person into a binary yes, no box, which never fits if it's about the future. Here's, if you want to ask them about the past, hey, did you go to the Maple Leafs game? Yes or no? Okay, you can answer that. But otherwise... Start the question without. Number two, stop blaming other people. Listen to your language and stop blaming other people for whatever the choices are you make. So in other words, don't say, I can't do this. 
eliminate that. Say, I don't do that. When someone calls you and says, well, I'd love to go to the meeting, but I can't. Take ownership. Say, I don't go to meetings like that. (laughs) And finally, and this is the most important one, it all starts with you. So the thing to do, because you're going to, if you want to go down the path that I went down, you're going to learn to give your control, give control to your team in small, small steps. So I want you, the next 10 times you go to a restaurant, don't order. Get the server to choose your meal, your drinks, whatever it is for you. And this is an activity. It's action. And we're going to go back to acting our way to new thinking. Why does this work? Number one, you have to live with the anxiety of not knowing exactly what you're going to get. I'm not saying, oh, chicken or fish, I'll take chicken. And then now you know, you just, you didn't do it. What I want is, I don't even want to know until I put it in front of me. But the second thing is, you have to make it safe for them to choose for you. You go to some high-end restaurant, the servers may be eager and happy to do it. You go to Timmy Hortons, maybe not so much. Try it at different restaurants, try it at different times of day, try it at the beginning of the week. And, and you'll notice in yourself, some days it's harder than others. And I want you to notice this because this is exactly what happens at work. If you can't let, if you can't, quote, empower the server to choose dinner for you, how in the heck are you going to go to work and let your team do something that really matters? <laughs> you can't. So th- you practice it. This way, it's safe. Nothing bad can happen. Trust me. I mean, if you have food allergies, obviously you're stupid if you don't tell them, but that's all part of it. And get them to choose for you. Then keep a journal, come into, your, come into work, reflect on what happened, share with, with your team when you could do it, when you didn't do it, how you felt from the heart, and then go forward from there. I love it. Share how you felt from the heart. That's a great way to wrap this up. So listener, David Marquette is a thought leader. He's a thought leader's thought leader. His new book, Leadership is Language, is a fantastic book. Make sure you pick up a copy for yourself. Make sure you pick up copies for the people that you care about in your team. Super, super important that you do that. Okay, pick it up for the people that work for you, pick it up for your friends, pick it up for your family, pick up five, 10 copies of this book. Heck, I'm going to pick up 20 and I'm going to make sure that I give a copy to each and every single one of our top clients. David Marquette, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And thanks for what you do and and all your listeners to help make the world a better place. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. And so, listener, if you're wondering to yourself, how do I bring out my inner David Marquette? How do I let my genius get out in the world? How do I make the difference I was born to make? How do I earn the income I want to earn from making the difference I was born to make? And here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's a great way to get a blueprint on how to do that. Go to our website, ecircleacademy.com, and smack dab in the middle of the page, there's a button that says, watch free masterclass. And we have a webinar masterclass that will help you create your own blueprint on how to take that genius that you have deep inside your soul and bring it out in a way that makes a difference and makes an impact. So you got to make 
a fantastic difference. You got to make a fantastic impact in the world, but you also want to make sure that it's financially viable and it's commercially viable for you as well. And this will do it. It's absolutely free. Make sure you do it. And as you do it, make sure that you find a way to connect what you're doing in your plan with your heart because heart leadership is the way to go. Heart, the heart leader movement is one that we're growing. It's one that's powerful and it's one that's going to make a big difference for you in the world. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only David Marquette, go to the show notes. Make sure you pick up a copy of his new book, Leadership is Language, and a copy of his old book, Turn the Ship Around. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.